Dr. Santhapa and I welcome you to Prudent Practices. Um, looking at the looking at the calendar for the next session. Let's see if we can predict when that might be. If today is the 11th, that would be the 25th. Let me bring it up on my cell phone here and see if I can see that that's a clear day. On the 25th, Friday the 25th, looks wide open. So that means about one o'clock on Friday the 25th, 1 p.m. Friday 25th. So I've got to remember to go in and change the the link uh, date. It doesn't change the link for anybody, but that's when we'll that's when we'll be back here. I'm Jim. Thank you all for being here. Today we're in chapter six, and if you would like to become a member, help support our organization, we will greatly appreciate that. I had a wonderful conversation for almost an hour this morning with a new environmental manager at a university, a small university, and helping her with the kinds of interactions that you need to have with all of your colleagues to be successful there, particularly when they're not used to having anyone in that role and not really used to thinking about complying with all of this. So it's an interesting challenge. Any questions? Would anyone like to ask a question before we start talking about the material? Hey, Consolato. Amazing. Look who's here. <laughs> Good. How are you? The new East Coast resident. I want to introduce you, Andrew. I want you to in introduce you to uh, Consolato Sergei, uh, who I met many years ago, I think. Um, yeah, Philadelphia. Yes. Yes, but uh, but you were in Europe. Where were you in Europe? I was uh, in uh, Innsbruck, Austria. Yes, in Innsbruck, Austria. And we've been corresponding and chatting for many years. And he was out on the west coast of Canada, but now he's in yeah. Ottawa area. And Andrew uh, it was the safety manager at the University of Ottawa. Oh. He was in charge of the lab safety there and then moved on to the Middle East and, and other places. So he's back oh. in Ottawa now. So you, you two should really connect. Of course, and, yes. Uh, and get to know each other better because Andrew is a great Canadian lab safety resource and, and in general lab safety resource. Excellent. Okay, good. So you nice. contacted me at the end of the last session. I don't see him here but maybe uh, maybe i haven't expanded the the window here large enough to be able to see everybody that's right i haven't so we're up to 23 people and that was i, I think that was drew is drew on here let's see if drew is here uh no i don't i don't see drew's name there but let's turn to page 81 and see if that's where it was yes because Drew spotted an error in the book on page 81 in the second paragraph that begins a beta particle, see table 410. And what he found was that as you go down the page about 10 lines, it says uh, 14C phosphorus 32. And then the, the, in parentheses, it says 32 
carbon, close parentheses, that should be phosphorus. It's not carbon, it should be phosphorus. And in the next line down, where it's talking about sulfur 35, they managed to put a P in there and it should be 35S, uh, superscript 35 and a capital S, not a P. So that was great, he spotted that. Okay, so we're back on page 114 and we're talking about transport of chemicals. And I'm reminded of an incident at the Mobile Beaumont Refinery in Beaumont, Texas, where I was visiting one year. And the lab manager was giving me a tour of the lab. And one of his colleagues walked in and took, took a four liter container, a glass four liter container of flammable liquid and stuck it under his arm. And then he put a second one in there. And then he put two over here and he had four liters of solvent, glass containers held in his arms, pressed to his chest, and he moved to the door and he couldn't get the door open. So he set one down, pulled the door open, stuck his butt against the door, picked it up and went out and went down the stairwell like this. And I turned to the lab manager and I said, gee, wouldn't it be good to have a carrier? And he pointed down the bench and there was one that would have held six bottles in this case that was there. So uh, this, is, this is not good and that's not the right way to transport chemicals. Any incidents that you've had with people transporting chemicals? Jim, I think I had at least 10 or more really serious ones. Oh dear. The, the worst one can happen if you spill something in the front of elevator and oh then dear. everything will go straight to the elevator shaft. And yes. This case, you know, you can have whole building right now evacuated right away. This is the problem. I think that the carriers are excellent, but I think uh, the carts are even better. If you have a cart with secondary containers on it, this is only one way, which is kind of foolproof. Yes. Sort of foolproof. Yes. Uh, we'll say it uh, uh, fuller, fuller proof, if not full. Yeah. And if you go over a door jam, please go backwards so you don't hit the front wheels on the door jam and have the whole thing pitch forward, which happens. We've had incidents where one person is walking down the hallway with a bottle of concentrated acid in one hand, and the other person has a large container of ammonium hydroxide in the other, and they're walking side by side with the two containers in between them, and they're swinging their arms back and forth, and they hit the two containers together and break both of them on the hallway floor. So this is, this is not good. Uh, we do have an NFPA code 45, the quantities of materials that can be contained in certain size containers. And there was some discussion about this afterwards in a phone call that I had, and I'm not sure I got it quite right because I did find the table which is 9.1 point something for this, but it says if the container is glass and it's a 1A flammable liquid like ether, the maximum amount you can have in glass is a pint. But if you have a larger amount, it can be in other kinds of materials of construction. So the glass is only limited to a pint uh, for the 1A, but you could have more out in the lab if it was in a different kind of container. 
And 6C6, use and maintenance of equipment and glassware. And it says carefully handle and store glassware to avoid damage. Uh, vacuum jacketed glassware with extreme care to prevent implosions. And all of that equipment in the Dow lab, the vacuum desiccators, the bell jars on vacuum pumps, suction filtration flasks, duar flasks, rotary evaporators, all of these kinds of equipment were crisscross wrapped with electrician's tape to make it less likely that you're going to inhale it if it were to implode. Did we get a chance last time to look at the grip safe and the glassomatic? Anybody recall whether we did that? I've yeah, got back on the taping up the doers, uh, we have meshed. Is there any preference of the tape versus the mesh? The mesh is nice because you can see inside the container a little bit better. Yes, mesh is, mesh is very good and it comes in different sizes. So that's, that's a very nice solution. Uh, let me look over here quickly, because I think I've got these right on top. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, I got them. Did we look at these? Kirk, does this look familiar? Did we show these here? Uh, I remember it from the last time through, but I'm I'm just joining you for this round. It's my first time. Okay. So I don't remember is, it from last time. Say again? I don't remember you showing this to us last time. Okay. Thanks, Kristen. This is called this is called GripSafe. It's made by a company called LabLine. And it's used to insert a thermometer or a glass rod into a rubber stopper. And what you do is you open this up and split it like that. And then you can put the thermometer or the glass tubing up in here and hold it. And this gives you a really firm grip on it. I think I should stop my that background screen if I can, because it's breaking up too much for this. Uh, where is that? Disable chat um, more. Yeah, I don't see how to. Uh, oh, it's on my image. That's where it is. More unmute dots. Choose the virtual background and we want none. And then you'll be able to see these more easily. That's better. Okay, so if I get my uh, fake thermometer here, I can put it right up through there. It sticks out, my hand is protected. We lubricate this, we lubricate the stopper, hold it with a glove and we go in. And then we can open this up and take it out with the stopper on here. The other one, this is called Glassomatic. It's made by Bangor Plastics in Bangor, Michigan. Uh, I know Flynn sells this and we sell it. Um, it's got a hole up the middle, a handle, a tube, and a nylon detachable nylon tip. So you lubricate this baby, you shove it through the stopper, and then you take off the tip. And let's get this out of the way here. And then you can um, put it through the stopper and with put this right up through the middle. The stopper is here. And when you pull this out, it leaves the stopper on the thermometer or whatever, not in your hand. 
the way I did. So it's called Glassomatic, and it's made by Bangor Plastics in Bangor, Michigan. Okay. Any question about those? Okay. Jim, uh, good Kevlar gloves as well works really good one for that. To manipulate yes. any glassware with Kevlar, Kevlar gloves, they are not expensive and they should be here in every lab. This is an example yep. of one. Exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. It, what does it say on here? It doesn't. It's uh, And it turns out that Nancy Reagan used to have a slip, a two-pound slip that was made out of Kevlar that she would wear in public as kind of a bulletproof protection under her clothing. Interesting. Kevlar's good stuff. Is that a, isn't that a, is that a DuPont fabric? I think it could be. Okay. I am not sure, but I, I was buying mine from North. Yes. Talks about finger lacerations from broken tubing connections. Uh, when you have a rubber hose on the uh, hose connection on a suction filtration flask, and you want to get that hose off, some people make the mistake of trying to pull it off, which compresses it on the stem, and they end up snapping off the stem and their arms go list when it snaps and then their arms recoil and they jam the broken glass stem or the broken flask into the other hands when the hands come back together. So that's, uh, that's not good. And uh, the solution to that is simply to take a single edge razor blade and just gently slice, first slice off the whole tubing, sacrifice this much that's on the stem. And then take your razor blade and gently score it so you can peel that piece off. And that's a much safer way to get it off of the suction filtration flask. There's another vignette on page 115 about runaway reactions during scale-up. We had a petroleum company in Thailand, in Rayong, PTTGC, Global PT, PTT Global Chemical, uh, have us do a, a four-hour seminar for them on the scale-up of chemical reactions because you can't a priori guarantee that what you can do in a beaker, a 25, 30, 40, 50, 100 milliliter beaker, when you scale it up to several liters, that the Isn't amount of energy, Sandra, question? No, okay, uh, that the amount of energy is going to be properly controlled. So we need to be sure that that energy transfer is going to be all right as one issue. And one of the things that they did at the Dow Chemical Company was that they would, um, they had a differential scanning calorimeter and they would run these to determine if there was going to be a pressure buildup somewhere. And they also had thermogravimetric analysis and all of their reactions that they were scaling up, they would run to make sure they weren't going to be excessively exothermic. I had that kind of problem two weeks on the job working for Dow when I had turned that round bottom flask with a condenser and a calcium chloride drying tube into a Roman candle with purple flames and, and black smoke. Um, the, uh, I didn't realize that the uh, temperature 
of the flask exceeded the boiling point of this DMSO solvent, and the reaction really took off uh, trying to make potassium tertiary butoxide, turned into a Roman candle with purple flames and black smoke. Have any of you used uh, either thermogravimetric analysis uh, or differential scanning calorimetry to study a reaction that you're working with? No? Okay. In, in, in industry, I'm working Sabic, for example, or, or Aramco. It's mandatory. If you want to scale up everything, you have to go to that one first, especially to, to change, to check that transport heat out. You know, if you have like small container, the volume of the uh, liquid compared to the, to the surface, it, it's, it, it's a really good one. But as soon as you go to the bigger one, the problem is really that in, inside the container in the middle, you can have completely different conditions for sure. Interesting. Other yeah. comments or questions, please? Jim? Yes. So in grad school, I did my research with TGA and DSC on energetic materials, determining um, kinetic coefficients. Well, that's interesting. Um, did you ever do the uh, uh, thermodynamic calculation to see how much energy would be produced in the reaction? I didn't personally, but the group did, yes. Yeah. How many of you, let's see a show of hands. How many of you have gone out and done chemistry demonstrations for other groups where you've taken some stuff with you and put on a demo? Okay, there's one hand I see. There's one, yes. And periodically, people do get into some considerable difficulty doing this, these kinds of demonstrations. Um, one had a group of students outside and they were putting sodium into a bucket and it exploded and a whole bunch of students' clothing was on fire. Uh, oh. Another uh, was doing a demo uh, for students, an auditorium filled with students, and they wanted to do the thermite reaction. And instead of having the the molten iron drop into a sand-filled flower pot. They thought it would be more interesting if they dropped it into a bucket, a fish tank filled with water. Well, it turned out that the molten iron was so hot that it caused the water to disassociate. And when the water disassociated, it made hydrogen gas and oxygen, of course, and then the hydrogen was so hot that it was above its auto ignition temperature. So it reacted back with all the oxygen that was there and in the air. And there was an explosion that uh, sent 27 students to the hospital from the first four rows of the audience. So we really need to be very prudent and careful with demonstrations. And the critical factor is to have the right shields present. Always have a shield between the demonstration and the audience. Uh, we have one slide somewhere that shows a 360 degree shield that protects not only the audience, but also the demonstrator. But portable shields are very important. And having out on the bench only the smallest quantity that you need to do it. We were doing a demonstration at WPI and I was the lecture demonstrator. 
And we thought it would be, I was for chemistry, chemistry 101 and 102, my teaching assistant position included being the lecture demonstrator for Dr. Robert Plum, very into demonstrations. One time he had me riding a bicycle down the center aisle of this auditorium to demonstrate something. I forget what it was, but it was kind of bumpy, but I made it. Another time I was hiding behind the door where the students come in and I had a fire extinguisher in my hand and he wanted to talk about the uh, thermodynamics of firing off a carbon dioxide fire extinguisher. So I guess uh, I thought it would be kind of funny if as a student was coming, I stepped in into the doorway and gave it a little shot. Unfortunately, the student that I did this to he was so surprised that he fell backwards onto the floor. Unfortunately, he wasn't seriously hurt, but it made the point pretty clearly that this was a really bad idea that I'd startled the living daylights out of him. Another time he had me filling uh, balloons with mixtures of hydrogen and oxygen, and then going around the room with a candle on a long stick and causing them to detonate. And unfortunately, it woke up several students who were trying to nap at the time. At the bottom of this page, 116, it's a, there's a reference to some safety guidelines on ACS. And I would encourage you to look at the resources of the Division of Chemical Education that are, the, are on the website as well. Comment? I pick up my card. I pull them out. Okay, let's see. That's, that's Sandra. Maybe I can help her here. Um, okay, I'm going to mute you, Sandra, and then you can turn that back on when you're ready. So at the top of 117, it says, in the event of an incidental laboratory scale spill, and I'm looking at those uh, four, five, six items that they've put here. Anybody read through those? Anybody see anything there that you would, you would comment on? Tend to any injured or contaminated personnel. Request help if necessary. I'm okay with that. What about number two? But don't you, Jim, don't you want to first make sure it's safe for you to go and attend to the people? Right. And so the premise here is that it's incidental. And before you can classify a spill as being incidental, you have to have done that assessment about whether this has the potential to cause harm to living things. And if it doesn't, it, it won't, and it doesn't have the potential to become, it's not an emergency, and it doesn't have the potential to become an emergency. Emergency is anything that has the possibility of causing harm to, to living things or the environment. So uh, if necessary, evacuate the area, that's part of the original decision, because if it's not incidental, it's an emergency and you've got to go out. And that, so I wouldn't say that's incidental if you're calling for an evacuation. And number four, any thoughts about number four? Take steps to confirm 
and limit the spill if this can be done without risk of injury or contamination. Is it possible to do anything without risk? I, I think you can get it down to an acceptable level, but I think you'd be hard pressed to say that there wouldn't be any risk involved. It's not gonna to go to zero. Page 118, high risk materials. And it says, for example, laboratories in which hydrofluoric acid is used should establish special procedures for accidental exposure. So how many of you, show of hands please, use hydrofluoric acid? There's one, or hit your hands up button please. Uh, I only see one, one positive sign of using hydrofluoric acid. Okay, there's another one, Bert, good. And it, then it talks about some of the steps. And I disagree with the steps, unfortunately. Uh, step number one is flush for no less than 15 minutes. I would ask you to look at and download a copy of the Honeywell HF medical book. Go into Google, type in Honeywell HF medical book and download a copy. And what you'll see is that they recommend a much shorter flushing period, two, three, four minutes perhaps. And then you have the application of the, and it, it says, do not use creams, lotion, salves unless specifically called for. Well, I think that's also not true because the next thing you're supposed to do is to apply calcium gluconate to it to try to neutralize, in effect, the, the fluoride ion before it penetrates the skin and goes subcutaneously to eat away at the bone and destroy the bone and have the limb fall off. So I have some concerns yeah. about the procedures here. Jim, can I yeah. just hop in with the, with a, that, that's, so the problem is, is it's going to steal the calcium from your cells, which will stop your heart long before it dissolves your bones and makes them fall off. I know that's much more of a Hollywood super fun thing that we all go boneless with calcium fluoride, but it just, it's, it's, you need the calcium channels for your heart to be. Yes. And so if you look at the photographs of injuries, I believe they do show amputations as a result of the damage to the fluoride having reacted with the calcium in your bones. Um, but that's a, I, I'm interested in the point that you're making, Jennifer, and I would love to have you send me um, some of the documents that you have that speak to this particular concern, because I'd like to become more familiar with them. The next step that you follow, if the topical calcium gluconate cream doesn't work, is to go to the hospital. And the hospital needs to provide subcutaneous injections of calcium gluconate to neutralize the fluoride under your skin and because you don't want it reaching your bones. And then uh, you have to make sure that the hospital is prepared to do this properly because they're not supposed to give you painkillers. Pain is the indicator that this titration has reached an endpoint. So you need to uh, make sure that the hospital is not going to administer painkillers. Uh, is this something that you're in agreement with, Jennifer? I'm coming at it from a pre-hospital uh, care consideration, not from once they're in the hospital. So that part I don't know as well. Okay, uh, but we need to dig deeper into this together to see if we can uh, find out what's up. 
the, the important thing is that you make an agreement with the hospital emergency room well in advance of wheeling somebody in on a gurney because you don't want to be the first time you talk about this with the hospital to be after while the emergency situation is in progress and your colleague is being treated there and they have no idea and you're trying to convince them to do something and they may not have the supplies to do it. So I would suggest anyone who's got hydrofluoric acid, make an appointment with the hospital emergency room, bring a copy of the book with you and your SDS and make sure everybody's on the same page. And that's that's what I'd like us to do um, as a follow-up. Okay. It says in number seven at the bottom of the column, bottom of column, first column on 118, if the MSDS is not immediately available, and my comment would be, why not? You'd better not be using hydrofluoric acid if you don't have a current SDS right at your disposal. There shouldn't be any question about whether you got it or not. And for any very hazardous material, toxic, corrosive, flammable, reactive, have it out there. Uh, working with chemicals, cuts, they don't mention the use of a tourniquet. Um, the, the application of a tourniquet in a severe injury could be necessary to stop bleeding and save somebody's life. If somebody's walking across the lab carrying a two-liter beaker and they drop it and they cut it and they it breaks and they fall on it and it cuts their femoral artery in their leg, they could bleed out in two minutes if you haven't got a good way to stop that bleeding. So knowing how to apply a tourniquet in a severe emergency and having something available to use to do it could save somebody's life. At the top of page 120, it talks about spill containment and the use of spill kits. And um, how many of you have spill kits at your place? Would you raise a hand, hit the hand raise if you've got a spill kit at your place? I'm assuming almost everybody would probably have spill kits, right. Okay, hands down. Second question, who's not 100% sure what the capacity of their spill kit is? Would you raise your hand back up if you're not sure what the capacity of your spill kit is? And the question would be, when would be the worst time to discover that you don't have enough? And the answer is halfway into dealing with a spill. So an action idea for today is to go back and look at all your spill kits and make sure that they're properly labeled as to what they're good for and how much that spill kit is going to be able to address. Because if you could do it quickly, it might not be an emergency, but if you're going to be standing around for a long time, maybe that's not such a good thing. And again, this page relates to um, the 29 CFR 1910-120 has whopper regulation for the cleanup of emergency spills and incidental spills. And anyone who might encounter a spill needs to have um, awareness training, minimum training, so you can look at it and say, it's time to leave. This could be an emergency. Let's get out and let's let a hazmat team do this. We are just working now and a project in Egypt and the, the topic 
This is for their STEM schools. Uh, we have every Tuesday and Wednesday a, an hour and a half session with school principals, 15 school principals, to talk about lab safety and safety at their private and boarding schools. And we're talking about waste disposal this past week. And most of the schools are not familiar with waste disposal procedures and do not have a company to take away the waste. So this is something we're also working on. Uh, having some of you are in states that may not be under OSHA regulations. If you are at a public sector institution in a uh, state in a state uh, that does not have OSHA coverage, like Alabama or Arkansas, and about a, um, a ten more. Massachusetts used to be one until about two years ago, where we changed to the state adopted this on their own without engaging OSHA, then you are still required to follow the OSHA regulation HAZWOPER, not because OSHA says so, but because the Environmental Protection Agency says so. Therefore, every employer in the United States that has an emergency spill of a chemical anywhere in their facility must follow 29 CFR 1910-120 because the EPA says so in 40 CFR 311. That makes it applicable to everyone. And they say, if you're doing this, you need to follow all the OSHA regulations that would apply to protect people's safety in that spill cleanup situation. Any questions about Hazwopper and spill cleanup? Uh, Malika has a hand up. Uh, did you have a question, Malika? You're, I guess you're muted. Uh, I see you said electronic copies of SDSs. Um, this is also the same for boron trifluoride solutions. Okay, good point. Okay. Handling leaking gas cylinders. If you have a copy of the safety gram that covers this subject, would you raise your hand, please? Anybody? Okay. Safety grams are published by Air Products. And if you go to airproducts.com or just type into Google Air Products safety grams, you will find several dozen PDFs of all kinds of information about dealing with compressed gases, indiv individual gases, as well as the equipment that you use and emergency response for leaking gas cylinders. So I would recommend Action Idea that you download some of these for all the compressed gases that you're using and all the compressed gas equipment that you're using and keep them together in an online file or in a binder of some kind and make them available to people so they're aware of the safety air products, safety grams. When it comes to having a leaking gas cylinder, there are, you want to consider only opening a gas cylinder valve about a half a turn. If that's enough to get all the gas out that you're going to need while you're using it, it's a much smarter position for the valve handle. Because as an emergency, if you need to close it, it's a whole lot easier to turn it a half a turn 
than to go in and try to turn it three or four full turns to get the gas cylinder to close. So think about that. And the other issue is if it's open all the way, people may get confused and think for some reason that it's stuck in the closed position and try to open it too far and then loosen the packing nut and the whole valve stem comes out and the cylinder dumps. There is a mention. Any question or comment about that? I have a comment because I don't see that often in in many places. I I use something called flow restrictors from Matheson. This is like a screw-on system when you can specify what will be the maximum flow of gas. And you can set up this for a few liters per minute, uh, less than a liter per minute. And then if you have anything leaking, you have a very small leak. And it's much easier to work with that. It's called flow restrict. They work very, very well in case of any problem. Good idea. One of the things that we did at Dow was after the regulator downstream, we had, first of all, a check valve so that two, three, four, five pound check valve, so nothing would flow back into the cylinder. And then we had a stem valve that you could unscrew as a second control over the flow. Yeah, but this flow restriction is between the cylinder and regulator. Okay, mean, so you that's, have them. Yes, that's different. Yes. Yes, and it really works beautifully. And of course, uh, check valves are required for every flammable gas by by the code as well. It's, you have to have that, not yes. coming back to the cylinder. To talk about flammable gases, how many of you are using hydrogen gas? Show of hands, use of hydrogen, compressed gas, hydrogen. I see Brett. I don't see any other other hands going up here. How about, yes, uh, Malika, Mark, Shannon. Okay. And remember the Joule-Thompson inversion temperature for hydrogen gas is minus 75 degrees. So when hydrogen rushes out of a gas cylinder, its adiabatic expansion is not endothermic like carbon dioxide, it is exothermic. And hydrogen can make itself so hot that it can exceed its autoignition temperature and spontaneously ignite. Remember the difference between autoignition and spontaneous combustion is that autoignition, you are applying the heat to get it hot enough to do to exceed the autoignition temperature, but in spontaneous combustion, it is heating itself up that hot to ignite. Carbon disulfide with an autoignition temperature of 95 degrees touching a steam pipe would be auto-ignite. But a linseed oil soaked rag in the trash will generate its own heat as the linseed oil reacts with oxygen in the air and it will spontaneously combust. In the second column on page 121, they're talking a little bit about mercury and elemental mercury. How many of you still have um, different things at your place where there is some elementary mercury in it? Would we have a, a show of hands to see how many places still have some mercury at their place? Okay, Kirk's hands up, Peggy, 
Brett, Candace, Malika, Mark, Jennifer, Jeremy. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was an incident at the East Moline in East Moline, Illinois, at an elementary school where a sixth grade science teacher said to the children, I'd like somebody to help me move my stuff down the hallway to Mr. Wilson's room. And Johnny put his hand up. So they put all the stuff in a box and Johnny headed down the hallway to Mr. Uh, Mr. Wilson's room, and halfway down the hallway, he reaches into the box and takes out a one-pound bottle of mercury and puts it in his pocket and takes it home and plays. It's the last day of school. School's out. They're playing in the basement, badly ventilated, shag carpet on the floor, spill the mercury with his brother and his two sisters. The parents don't know it's there. They get sicker and sicker and sicker, and finally, they're all four hospitalized, and uh, Johnny's spleen fails, so they take his spleen out, and he's getting worse. And finally, uh, they diagnose this as a new virus, and they name it after Johnny. And then a nurse discovers, through questioning him, and they discover the mercury, and they go back home, and the home is totally contaminated. It's now an EPA hazardous waste site, and there's a lawsuit. The family sues the school. The children are now undergoing chelation therapy to try to get the mercury out of their systems. So this was a, a major, major, major problem for this school district, and, uh, you know, they were allowing, you do not want to allow children to transport hazardous materials to the schools without the direct supervision of a teacher. And this is what the National Science Teachers Association says in their publications, and they weren't doing that. So this settled at $650,000 in 1985. On page 122, they're talking about flammables and putting out fires at Worcester Polytech, where I was in graduate school, there was a great organic chemist named David Todd. And Dr. Todd always carried a five-inch watch glass in his lab coat pocket. And he would wander around the lab observing what students are doing. And if somebody's beaker or flask caught on fire, he would start singing. You take away the air and you take away the flames. And he'd walk up and he'd pull out his watch glass and he'd set it down on top of this thing and smother it. And he'd walk away smiling. Um, yeah, you need to think about what can happen when there's a fire and be be prepared. If your clothing is on fire, if you're right next to the shower, step in and pull the handle. Otherwise, do stop, drop, and roll, and the flames will go out, and then get yourself into the shower to cool off, unless it's third degree. Any question about fires or mercury? Working with substances of high toxicity, the lab standard in element number eight of the chemical hygiene plan is talking about these, what are called PHSs, particularly hazardous substances. And they have four major points that they would like you to think about in dealing with these. And one is, uh, do you want to use this in a designated area? That's D6, D3. And you want to make sure that you don't put locks on refrigerators. In 64, use locks on to secure refrigerators. Well, not if it's got flammable materials in it. Only those that have no flammable materials, otherwise you're 
creating a bomb. 65 is element number two. Do you want to use it in a fume hood or a, um, a fume hood or a um, glove box? And 67 is number four. How are you going to get rid of the hazardous waste so you don't hurt anybody? And what is element number three that OSHA requires that is not mentioned here? I didn't see number three in this section. There are those, there are four requirements for dealing with particularly hazardous, uh, four things they recommend that you pay attention to. They've only spoken to three of them here. Anybody remember what the fourth one was? Going once, going twice, okay. It is that you clean up the area so you don't leave a gift for anybody. How are you going to clean up after you're done doing this so that nobody gets harmed by any left behind residues of the particularly hazardous substance? How about in second column on page 124, paragraph three? Do you see anything there? Jim, I would argue there are uh, something about safety glasses with side shields being a minimum. I would raise it up to a splash goggle. Yeah, that's in my margin, I wrote chemical splash goggle. What I'd really like to see them say is, as a minimum, wear safety glasses. And uh, if it's chemical splash, you should be wearing a chemical splash goggle. And this is exposure to highly toxic chemicals. And so uh, I'm not sure why safety glasses are even on the menu here. And if, and if, the, and if the situation is severe, add a, say, a face shield over the chemical splash goggle. In column one on 125, we talk about um, experiments conducted with highly toxic chemicals should be carried out in work areas designed to contain accidental release. And we were doing experiments using um, hydrogen cyanide. So we had the amyl nitrite antidote pinned to our lab coat and taped to the face of the hood and a red flashing light in the room so that anybody who walked in could see that this was a high danger area, high danger experiment going on. That brings us to page um, 126, and we're about at the end of the hour. Are there any other subjects that you'd like us to talk about before we adjourn?